Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. Happy Asalaha Puja. Today is the full moon of Asalaha. Asalaha being one of the months, one of the lunar months in the Indian calendar at the time of the Buddha. This uh, this is the full moon of the month of Asalaha. Two full moons after the Buddha's enlightenment. So the Buddha the Buddha story usually ends. The telling of the Buddha story usually ends on Wisaka, and Wisaka is Wisaka is another month in the lunar year and on the full moon of Wisaka the Buddha became enlightened and that's usually where it ends which is unfortunate because that's really when the story begins it's, it's only the Buddha's enlightenment is only significant in that he actually taught others because there were beings who became enlightened but were unable to comprehend the teaching to be able to share it with others in a meaningful way Buddha, a fully enlightened Buddha isn't, 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 um, isn't limited in that way. They're able to teach, and they do teach. And so the 45 years after the Buddha's enlightenment are actually the most important. So 49 days after the Buddha became enlightened, he walked from Gaya, um, Bodh Gaya, which now has become Buddha Gaya, to Saranad, which is near near uh, Waranasi, what is now Waranasi. And he walked, so it took him just two weeks, approximately, because more around 60 days later, he was in Saranat. No? He arrived at the, on the full moon, and this is where we get the teaching on the middle way. It's not actually a teaching that is all that predominant in the Buddha's teaching. I and mean, we hear so much about it only because it was in the first discourse, but it's gained um, perhaps an out, an out, um, overestimated importance in Buddhism because it's not something Buddha harped upon or or, or dwelt upon um, as a as a regular theme. It was somewhat exceptional in in the first discourse because, of course, the discourse was first discourse was given to the five ascetics who were torturing themselves. I mean, in fact, sorry, a lot of the Buddha's teaching teachings were were one-sided in terms of talking about craving being the cause of suffering, and that was sort of already understood, um, even in, in early uh, Brahmin Upanishad Upanishadic thought a lot of talk about desire as being problematic. Hinduism today still talks about desire as being a cause of suffering. It was the um, the path and the truth of suffering that um, that different, but the uh, because these ascetics were were of that bent, you know, they understood that desire was problematic. The path that they chose, and sort of the understanding of of what is suffering, was different. Was 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 wrong, and so they were torturing themselves. They were actually creating suffering for themselves. 
And we do this. We do this many different ways. People who are uh, what, who are familiar with the idea that addiction and, and desire is problematic, they they end up torturing themselves, either religiously or not. They'll do it in a secular sense. People spend their lives um, working, for example, um, doing the good thing, you know, doing the right thing, helping others, activists, and people who are social workers, that kind of thing. They're working for goodness and, and, and end up getting burnt out, working too hard, pushing themselves, torturing themselves, thinking that some other's benefit to be had outside of desire. So they understand on the one hand that desire is problematic, they just don't understand how to be free from it. And so as a result, or how to be free from suffering. And they don't understand, they don't understand how to be free from desire. And believe that simply uh, working contrary to your desires, giving up, being altruistic, that kind of thing, that this is the way. And so the Buddha found the middle way. And that's, this was the teaching that he had to give to these people who were, who were, were set upon torturing themselves, religiously in this case, like actually physically torturing themselves. So he explained to them that it's not, it's, it, just because desire is wrong doesn't mean you can go to the other extreme and and, and uh, cultivate that which is undesired, unpleasant, undesirable. He showed them that there was a middle way. It was the way of not non-extreme, the way of not seeking out, of not uh, inclining either to pleasure or to pain. It was uh, a way of tolerance and patience. Patience is really the best way to understand them. It's a special kind, a special understanding of patience that we don't normally realize. That patience, true patience, doesn't mean simply dealing, um, dealing and bearing with the pleasant, the unpleasant things. But it also means bearing with the pleasant things. When something unpleasant comes, you're patient with it, insofar as you don't get upset about it. But when something good comes, you're patient with it, insofar as you don't leap there for it. So when you're truly patient, you're, you're able to experience things without reacting to them special kind of patience, anulomika kanti, it's patience that leads to or in, uh, is in line with truth and leads to enlightenment. So he taught the middle way. This was what he started with because they were saying, well, you know, you, you tortured yourself and you couldn't find couldn't find the truth. You lived a life of pleasure, couldn't find the truth. How could you possibly claim to be enlightened? And they said, well, it's because neither of those works. I tried them both. I lived a life of luxury, it's true. Didn't help. I tortured myself, it's true. I gave it up because it too didn't help. So I found the middle way. I found the way to avoid extremes. And then he taught them the Eightfold Noble Path. And that's sort of a blueprint of Buddhism. The Buddha's teaching is based on these eight factors. And it's a good way to introduce Buddhism, as often is the way people begin uh, to approach Buddhism. Whereas other religions teach what? The belief in God, belief in a prophet, belief in a being, an entity. That's the way. Jesus is the way to God. That kind of thing. Allah is the way to heaven. The Eightfold Noble Path is the way of Buddhism. It's where Buddhism starts and ends. But he didn't explain it actually at first. He, although Mahasi Sayada talks about this, is what he probably went into detail. But uh, he, he seems to kind of back off a bit and, and said, well, you know, let's, 
start from the beginning. We've got the Sefer Noble Path, but let's understand the context. So then he taught, then he teaches the Four Noble Truths. He starts with suffering. You know, it's not just the, the Eightfold Noble Path. The Eightfold Noble Path is uh, in a larger context of the Four Noble Truths, and the Four Noble Truths uh, each have three parts. So you have the truth of suffering, and then you have to that you have to uh, understand completely this truth of suffering that you have to really understand and, and clearly comprehend suffering that this is actually practice I mean this is this is probably the, the most defining feature of Buddhism right this concept of suffering but what's um, often missed I think by Buddhists more especially is that the Four Noble Truths is not 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 directly about escaping suffering, although over the overall it is. The Four Noble Truths is a is a message that in order to escape suffering, you have to face it, you have to understand it fully, which means you have to focus on it. It's really the most important of the Four Noble Truths is this first one. It defines the object, defines the object of, of observation, that you actually do have to focus on suffering, which is a criticism people often level towards Buddhism, but it's true. You have to focus on the problem. You have to focus on what's wrong, what's causing you discomfort, upset. You have to focus on that, and you have to address that. Because it's the only way to give up the second noble truth, which is desire, craving. Craving is the cause of suffering, and what you got to do about that is give it up. The only way you give it up is by seeing the truth of suffering. And that means seeing really that everything is a cause for suffering if you desire it, if you crave it. There's nothing in the world that is worth craving, that can bring you happiness. There's no reason to desire anything, because it can't really bring you happiness. It's impermanent, it's unsatisfying, it's uncontrollable. And as you study the things that are this way, you come to see that they're this way. You study the object of experience, the constituents of experience, you can see quite clearly that they're impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable. And as a result, you give up desire for them. That's the third noble truth. The third noble truth is, is the freedom from suffering, which comes from the freedom from desire. It's quite simple. And it's to be realized for yourself. It's Nibbana, Nirvana. When with, with the freedom from desire, there's a there's a freedom from suffering, and the fourth noble truth is the the path, sort of how you go about seeing clearly, how you go about understanding suffering, how you go about this process, and then he gets back to the full noble path, and that's to be cultivated. It's basically the um, the Dhamma Chakapavatthana, the first first discourse of the Buddha. It's a very important one where he really outlines the eight, Eightful Noble Path, Four Noble Truths. And he says that this is what was the defining feature of being a Buddha, of being a Buddhist, really. And enlightenment in Buddhism is focused on the Four Noble Truths and their, their tasks. If you complete the task for each of the Four Noble Truths, that's enlightenment in Buddhism. So quite clearly a definition of the Buddhist religion, if you will, you know, the teachings of the Buddha, if you want to understand what is the core of it, it's this sutta. It's very good in that way. So that was on the Salha Puja. Five days later, he gave the, the Lakana Sutta. So that's, today is the Salha Puja. We're celebrating the first discourse. Tomorrow we'll be entering into the rains. It's the beginning of the new season in the Buddhist calendar, in the Hindu, the Indian calendar at the time. It's the hot season. This is the 
last day of the hot season, I guess. Tomorrow will be the first day of the rainy season. So tomorrow, I have to move into our new location, officially. And then on the fifth day of the new month, which is five days from now, that would be when the Buddha gave the Anattalak in the Sutta, which is the second discourse. So, it's a little bit about the Salha Puja, a little bit about the basis of Buddhism, which is, I think, useful. Even for those of us who are familiar with Buddhism, familiar with Salha Puja, going over the Four Noble Truths is always good. Something you should always focus on. Those of you who are, have not heard these, the story of the Buddha and the story of Asalaha Puja, I think it's quite important. It gives you a sense of focus because you know you, you can study Buddhism, you can read about it, and often you just, you know, skirt around the edges, reading here, reading there, and you never really get a sense because it's like the blind men and the elephant. If you go, if you're blind and you go and look at an elephant, when you just touch its tail, you think, well, the, the elephant's like a broom. Or if you touch its tusk, you think, well, it's like a pole. If you touch its trunk, and you think it's like a, I don't know, I can't remember what that's, but like an ear, then it's like a winnowing fan and that kind of thing. When the elephant is so much more, and to really get a sense of the elephant, you really need to be able to grasp the the elephantness of it. And the Four Noble Truths are that, they're the essence of Buddhism, the essence of the elephant. Okay, so let's uh, look at some questions. Why is it only when I'm conscious of my stomach rising and falling? My lungs start to hurt because I'm unintentionally. Is this, um, is this what I've answered? No. I'm unintentionally forcing my breath. I try and let my breath naturally come in, being mindful of rising and falling, but it lacks. And I start yawning because I'm not getting enough oxygen. It's so difficult. They always start my meditation with rising and falling of the stomach or whatever comes to my attention. Do the rising and falling. It's meant to be difficult. It's meant to be challenging. It's challenging you to stop controlling, to learn to let go, to learn to be flexible. Just keep doing what you're doing. The change will come by itself. Your mind will start to get it. Get the fact that it can't control, can't be in charge, can't force things. Eventually, your mind will just let go. It will learn to be flexible, to experience and to interact rather than, rather than react and, and fight with the experience. You're unintentionally forcing. That's the whole point to be able to see that is such a great thing. It teaches you not only that you're forcing, but that forcing is a real cause of suffering and stress. And when you finally see that, you start to change, start to be disinclined, become disinclined towards forcing things. The fifth precept is I undertake the training rule to abstain from fermented drink that causes heedlessness. Tea is considered to cause heedlessness. Isn't fermenting, isn't fermented, but some tea changes your feelings. Yes, but yes, and there's a case there. I understand caffeine, cigarettes, um, those sorts of things could be considered to be intoxicants, but they're not intoxicants in the same way that alcohol is an intoxicant. If you drink alcohol, there's something quite extreme that goes on, and so it's a very dangerous thing. Coffee, tea, not so dangerous. You want to say it's problematic? I'm with you. I don't take caffeine, not regularly. Sometimes I do, and then people give me tea or coffee. But um, I don't consider it, it's, it's clearly not anything like alcohol. Alcohol poisons your mind, poisons the brain, and, and really makes it quite difficult to be mindful. 
So therefore there's a precept against them. It's actually, it's not immoral to drink alcohol. Not in the same way that it's immoral to kill or to steal. And yet it's a precept because if you have unwholesomeness in your mind, the chances of being able to prevent unwholesomeness from arising, from, from taking charge, you think of the things you've done when you're drunk. If I think of the things I did when I was drunk, not proud. And in fact, there was one time I remember I was just frustrated. I was young and I fell in with this the wrong friendship. You know, there's this other guy who was going around stealing people's alcohol and um, stealing people's things and bothering them and breaking things and destroying things. And I fell in with him one night, got drunk with him, and we just started doing terrible, terrible things at this party. And I ended up losing, not losing, but damaging many friendships as a result of my action. You know, we do things that we wouldn't, I was horrified the next morning to realize an idiot I had been. You do that when you're drunk. You fall, fall into that. Now, coffee and cigarettes. Probably not going to have the same effect. Problematic? Sure. Good argument. But to say they're the same as alcohol is not really proper. Scrolling, scrolling. When I see that my cat has a mouse and will likely kill it, how should I react in order for the best karmic outcome? Okay, should I let the cat kill the mouse? No. Rescue the mouse and leave it to die? Better. Kill the mouse to end its protracted death? No. No, what we don't really understand as people, unless you've done, you know, even if you've done, what we don't understand is that killing is a very, very profound act. We don't get it. It's not clearly evident. Death seems to be like at the moment, you know. It's actually quite peaceful to die, right? Whereas torturing someone is far worse. I agree that torturing um, torturing someone could be arguably worse karmically, right? It's more prolonged. It's more vicious. And killing can be actually done quite simply. But killing is a very profound act, and you feel it when you do it. I remember driving far before I was a Buddhist, driving in my father's car and seeing a turtle on the side of the road and I wanted to pick it up and and move it out of the way so it wouldn't get run over. Turns out it had already been run over. Big turtle, I think it was like, well, maybe not that big, but a really big turtle. And so I stopped and I saw that it its shell was broken and it was hissing at me. I was in great pain. I was dying. I mean, this happens if you live in the country. You see these turtles, dead. You know, dead already, but not dead, but you know, with no hope by the side of the road. They've been run over. And what did I do? I put it under my tire and I ran over it several times, thinking that, thinking that I was helping. If you've never done that, you don't. Even if you've done it, if you've never really practiced meditation, you can't feel how awful that is. What a horrific thing it is to do. Now, it seems humane. It seems like the right thing to do. You know, it seems like you're putting it out of its misery. We talk about this. I was with a friend once. This is after I was Buddhist, actually. We were talking about killing, and we were, we were debating. And he said once he, really good guy, even to this day, he's he's always been on a better path than I have. I mean, well, not now. He's not Buddhist, so clearly inferior, but uh, he's still a really good guy. But he always he always had his, his head sort of on straight in a way that I never did. He had a moral compass, as they say. And so he was telling me about how he once tried to kill a seagull. He saw a seagull that had been hit by a car. And so he picked up a rock and he was going to try to crush the seagull. And he said he couldn't do it. He felt bad and he felt bad to that day. After all those, all that time, he still felt horrible that he 
was unable to kill the seagull. He felt guilty about it, not being able to do it. That's how profound it is to kill. When you actually, you're actually faced with it, you can feel it. It's a really surprisingly profound act, killing. It's really it's part of the universe because death is significant. I was talking about death not being real, but as far as simple experiences go, it's a very profound one because of how the human birth is set up. And so I didn't really give him an argument, but it was really interesting because that day we were on our way to see a friend whose mother had died. And when we got there, the friend and her family was talking about, were talking about this woman who, who had died and how right before she died, she was in really confused throughout her, her sickness. But right before she died, she suddenly cleared up and she looked at them and she maybe even, I can't talk to them, I can't remember, but she looked so lucid and clear. She was suddenly remarkably alert. And then she passed away. It was like she had finally come to terms with her life and was ready to die. That's what a good death is like. You don't measure it by the sickness. You measure it by the last moment. And that they've worked out everything they have to work out, everything that was this life, whether the last chapter was actually written and completed. Murder even with the best of intentions, is breaking that off. It's death halfway through the last chapter. It's confusion. It's uh, fear. It's, um, it's not complete. It's, it's cutting out, being cut off halfway through. And therefore, uh, quite a precarious position to be put in. So when you talk about, you know, stopping a cat from killing a mouse is good for both, really. So if you stop the cat from committing that horrible deed, you change the course of its destiny because after you've killed it becomes much easier to do it again it becomes habitual you're set on a on a path of greater coarseness your, your mind is more coarse and you think much less of killing the second time and the third time and so um but then when the, when the mouse is half dead and you've prevented the cat from actually doing the killing, you, uh, you sit there and you wonder whether it's worth allowing it to be tortured. But you see, you haven't done the torturing. The torturing was an awful thing, there's no question. But it's over, it's done with. The question now is, allow the being to deal with the suffering that has already happened, that has already been dealt with or break it up halfway through when the, the being is still dealing with the suffering and is still unresolved about the suffering, right? So it's still in a state of anguish. To kill the being in its state of anguish, it's highly problematic. What you want to do is to die at peace. The only way to do that when you're in great suffering is to allow the pain and suffering to run its course. Just recently, it's a silly example, but I have this teapot that I drink out of, and I was drinking out of the teapot, and suddenly there was something kind of not water in my mouth, and I don't know how, but I'm still not sure how it happened, but I kind of closed my teeth on it, just lightly, until I realized it wasn't what it was, and I pulled it out of my mouth, and it was a beetle, and it was a black bug. And I had, uh, I had killed it. I hadn't killed it, but I had severely injured it. And I put it down. And there was a sense, you know, oh, it's suffering horribly, this, this insect, you know. And, and difficult to watch, you know, to look at this being suffering. 
and at first it was cringing, but eventually it 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 uh, you know you're just watching, and eventually it calmed down. It entered into a more peaceful state, and it actually walked away eventually. I don't know where it went. Somewhere in my room, <laughs> dead somewhere, I'm sure. In my room, but, you know, there's nothing you you can't take back the suffering. You can't take back the problem. But when you have a problem, it's very useful and very important for you to deal with it and work it out. Because that's part of life, it's part of samsara. If you're constantly avoiding these things, if you're constantly trying to avoid them, they're just going to cause you more suffering the next time they come around. You're not actually going to escape suffering. So it's a very important question. It's a very good question, kind of question that should be talked about and should be discussed and analyzed. That's the Buddhist outlook on it as far as I understand. Recently while meditating I have been slowing my in, out and time between breaths down drastically. I've noticed some results quickly. Can this be used to settle into a meditation or ultimately slowing down my process, progress? If you've read my booklet, you know that that's not how we practice. The slowing down consciously of your breath is creating a um, artificial state. It's, it's creating a sort of a dichotomy, I guess, of the way it should be and the way it shouldn't be. So you're setting up a specific intention, let it be this way. And as you do that, you um, lose sight of the uncertainty of, of reality and you become caught up in the idea of controlling reality and keeping reality in a certain way which is not really possible it's something that you do for a while and eventually you give up and it goes back right back to the way, the way it naturally is which is uncertain and un inconstant so any kind of trying to control the breath or trying to control anything is very much against the practice of insight meditation now if you just want to calm the mind temporarily sure there's lots of things you can do and that's valid meditation but it doesn't last that's the key the key problem the buddha said with any of these kind of meditations they don't last they're impermanent it's the true problem with uh, any kind of pleasant and peaceful meditation and they don't last meditation isn't supposed to be peaceful it's not the true practice true practice is based on suffering about learning to deal with difficulty problems so that they no longer uh, they're no longer problematic How does one go about checking the availability to stay at the Siri Mongol Meditation Center? It's a good question. You don't right now. We don't have a way for you to check availability. I don't know if we want to. We have a calendar, but it's not open to the public. I think, you know, the way we're doing it now is you have to apply, and then we tell you. You apply and we say, mm, we're not, we don't have room at that time. Or we say we have room at that time. And, you know, if you, if you book, it seems right now, if you book, if you book two months in advance, you're pretty good. And I don't know how the fall is going to be. It could just be a summer thing, but right now we're booked a month and a half in advance. I think right now we're booked through August. Hmm through August and into September. It's the best we can do for now. I'm not sure that we want to make the calendar public. Maybe we do. That's something we have to talk about. Anything? I mean, it's got names on it is the only thing, I guess. Otherwise, we could make it public. Maybe we could give every meditator a code number. We just put numbers on the calendar. Use initials. Yeah, but we need to know the names. That's the thing. The benefit of the calendar is for us to look at it and say, oh, this person is coming. Then we can look at their, their like Ryan's coming tomorrow. Tomorrow we have a new meditator. 
Ryan. And I don't even remember who Ryan is because I only started putting last names, family names on. So I don't know. Best thing is to just apply or contact us and ask about a time and we'll let you know. We'll book in advance and we're pretty good. There's a week in October that I'm maybe going to be away, so I'm trying to keep it free. But apart from that, and then December, the Christmas holiday, unfortunately, I'll probably be with, with my mother in Florida. When my thoughts arise, is it useful to envision the thoughts of little bubbles rising to the surface above and away from myself? This is what I've been doing while sitting meditation. No, that's not. If you haven't read my booklet on how to meditate, please do so. And you have to follow that meditation. There's lots of little tricks. Your mind will trick you into doing it all sorts of wrong way. No, all sorts of different ways. Um, but if you're not doing it as it's taught in the book, you're overcomplicating things. You know, the thoughts are not bubbles. If you're creating bubbles, then you have to say seeing. If you're visualizing something, then you have to say to yourself seeing, seeing. You have to correctly um, remind yourself of the nature of the experience. So if it's thinking, you have to say thinking. If it's thought bubbles, bubbles, you have to say seeing, seeing when you see bubbles. I'd like to join your community and help open the monastery in Thailand. What's the earliest I can join? It's a problem because we don't have a monastery in Thailand. We used to, so you may be looking at some old information. I've been in Thailand, I've been in Sri Lanka, I even tried to open something in California and that was somewhat disastrous, but try it. Now I'm kind of succeeding here. We're kind of succeeding here in Canada. We're renting still, but you know, renting is a good start. Next step, I guess, is to look into eventually getting our own piece of property somewhere. So sorry, but nothing in Thailand. Can the mind experience things outside of oneself? I don't know what you mean. No, no, not really. You can only experience at the six senses. The six senses are the gates. You can't go outside of those. Still seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. That's all you can experience. It's at the doors of perception. If someone truly does not suffer in life, does this mean he does not need Buddhism, meditation, etc.? That's right. If someone truly does not suffer in life, I suppose that's not even fair because ordinary people don't suffer all the time. They aren't constantly suffering. In fact, the only, the only real suffering besides physical suffering is when you're angry and we're not always angry. If a person, now if a person doesn't get angry, it doesn't mean that they're enlightened. You see, you can avoid anger, not in not indefinitely, but for a long time. You can practice tranquility meditation and you can have sustained periods where you're never angry, you're never upset, there's no disliking. It's possible. Doesn't mean you're enlightened. So it's not about it's not about whether you have suffering in your life. The question is whether you're capable, whether it's possible for suffering to arise for that person. If it's not possible for suffering to arise for a person, if it's not possible for a person to get angry, to dislike something, then they don't need Buddhism. But just because someone isn't suffering now, and that's in a general sense true, if a person is in general happy, it, it's no indicator that they're going to be happy in the future. It's not a good indicator. It's a possible indicator, but there are many people who have great peace and happiness in their lives who end up suffering in the future because their happiness was based on whatever, based on circumstance, physical circumstance or mental circumstance, but not based on wisdom, not based on freedom.
Bante question. This person's username is Bante question. I like it. Bante, you mentioned that your that your since since your friend wasn't Buddhist, he wasn't on the right path. I assume that was a joke. No, no joke. The person's not Buddhist; they're not on the right path. Would you say a person can be on the right path while being part of another religion? No, no, it's not possible. I mean, they're just labels. So obviously, many Buddhists are on the wrong path, and people who call themselves who don't call themselves Buddhists might, in some way, be on the right path. But if you're not following the Buddhist teaching, you're not on the right path. So if someone is Christian, they're on the wrong path. There's something wrong there. Because Jesus isn't the path to God. And God isn't the answer. Heaven isn't eternal. Hell, neither is hell. So the Christian doctrine doesn't hold up to snuff. It's not real. It's not true. Anyone who believes it's true is on the wrong path. It's out of touch and out of line, out of sync with reality. One. Islam, same. Judaism, you know, what is Judaism? I don't really know. Judaism, the idea that certain rituals are necessary, important, and the right way to live is, is wrong. It's wrong to believe that because those rituals are not necessary. Abstaining from pork, for example, is not really necessary. Um, but well, some of the rules in, in Judaism are pretty horrific. Hinduism, Hinduism has a lot about Maya, that this world is just a mirage. It's not true. This world is as real as it gets. There's nothing more real about an underlying um, reality that, that is beyond this dream state, according to Hinduism. You know, this is just dreams, basically. And it's all just illusion. Hindu, uh, it's, it's an interesting philosophy. That's why I like Hinduism better than the Abrahamic religions, I find them to be somewhat simplistic. Even though I know someone was arguing that, um, what was it, um, Thomas Aquinas, uh, those kind of things, St. Augustine. These guys were very, very deep thinkers, and there was a lot of you know, very profound thought going on. It's still a simplistic philosophy. In Hinduism, it's interesting. they got a better argument. They say how they deal with suffering, right? Hinduism, they say, well, it's just a game. Krishna is just playing with us. It's called Krishna Lila. He's just playing a game. I mean, that, that you can actually get behind. Well, of course, that makes sense. I mean, it's a, it's a mess out there. How else do you make sense of it? This isn't the work of an omniscient being. You can't argue that, even though they do. It's a silly argument. This is the work of a madman. And Hinduism kind of says it. Like, yes, yes, Hindu is just playing games. He's crazy, basically. That's what Krishna is. Still crazy. It's still not the truth. So yeah, outside of Buddhism, there's no, there's no right path, right practice. Seems like Buddhism, as it is practiced here, is more of a philosophy rather than a religion. Since you don't really worship a god, would you agree? No, I disagree. And if you if you know anything about my understanding of the word religion, you know that Buddhism is very much a religion to me. Oh, I missed a question. I missed some talks. Anyway, so we'll go back to them. Um, religion means taking something seriously. We use the word uh, in a secular sense. He dieted religiously. She exercised religiously. X did X, X did Y religiously. Religiously means take something seriously. It means you're not frivolous with it. It's not just a hobby. It's not something you do off the cuff, something you really take seriously. I take Buddhism you know, quite seriously. This is something that is important. Um, so that's religion for me. Religion has nothing to do with God or belief, worship, faith. That's not what religion means. It's what it means to some people, but it's not really what the word means. It's not where the word comes from. It's not clear where the word comes from, but a really good answer in my mind is it comes from the, the word religion, religions, as opposed to negligence, the opposite of negligence.
is the meditation course you give at your center similar to the SM Gwenga 10 day Vipassana course given around the US and other places? Not really. It's quite different. We do walking meditation as well, first of all. The Buddha encouraged walking and sitting meditation. The Gwenga tradition doesn't do that. So, uh, well, you know, it's an argument we would make, but it is a distinction. We do walking and sitting meditation. Uh, also, the technique's quite different. And the foundation course takes 20, somewhere around 20 days. And we say 21, but usually it doesn't take quite so long. Uh, you should read our booklet on how to meditate, and then you'll get a sense of the technique that we practice. There's a link at the top of our meditation page here. What if a person follows Buddhist teachings, but has a pan, pantheist view of the world? Well, pantheism is not Buddhism, I don't think. I don't quite know pantheism. Pantheism is the idea that there's lots of gods, right? I mean, gods in Buddhism aren't, it's not theism. There's no worshipping of the gods in Buddhism. So if you're worshipping gods, not Buddhist, not following Buddhist practice. Would you agree that most religions have created for themselves what I have termed a religious junkyard? Hmm? Oh, sorry, pantheism, the belief or doctrine that God is greater than the universe. Huh? Panentheism. No, you're spelling it all weird. What are you really trying to spell here? Panentheism? What the heck is panentheism? Panentheism? Don't you mean pantheism? Panentheism? You spelt it two different ways. For you. Such a word as panentheism. Huh. There's something I've never heard this word before. The belief or doctrine, I think even pan, panentheism or something, pantheism, panentheism. The belief or doctrine that God is greater than the universe and included and includes and interpenetrates it. Oh God, I don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. God is just a concept. It's something people created to, because uh, you know, they couldn't cope. <laughs> they needed a father figure or a, something bigger, an explanation. It's such a cop-out. Rather than trying to explain things, you just say God. It's easy. It's really, you know, even many rational individuals can appreciate how easy it is. I can appreciate it. You know, the idea that outside of the universe, yeah, I mean, it's the only way you could really make sense of the universe. Why, why, right? It's the only way to answer this question, why? Well, God. It doesn't really answer the question. It just moves the goalposts. Rather than having to explain the universe, you now have to explain God. And you say, well, you can't. And so suddenly, oh, yes. It's just, rather than try to answer the question, just say it's unanswerable. Sometimes after meditating, I get memories, but not past lives or anything esoteric, just memories of myself when I was a child that I forgot. Is there a way to go further? It's not the not the goal in meditation. It's great that these things are coming up. It means you're starting to come to terms with yourself, with all your memories. But that's all we want to do. We want to let them go. If you had to go back into your memories, there'd be no end because memories go back as far as you want. There is a way to go back. You know, you can practice remembering more, but it's not really the way of, certainly not the way towards freedom from suffering. Basically, that universe is God. No. If you call it something, something else, you're extrapolating. It's not God, it's just the universe. It is what it is. That's Buddhism. 
How do you make sense yourself? I don't. Buddhism is atheistic. It's not more panentheistic. Not at all. You don't make sense of the world. Well, you make sense of how it is, not why it is. I think the question why is misguided. To assume that there is a why is an assumption. There's no reason to think that the universe has any meaning. That's our problem. As beings, we look for the why. Buddhism doesn't do that. Buddhism looks at the what, you know, and the how, how to be free from suffering, what is suffering, what is the universe, basically. doesn't try to look at what's behind the curtain. Behind the curtain is just more what. All right. Well, thank you all. This has been a great session. I'm going to stop it there because it's actually quite hot up here. We don't have the air conditioning on. Um, but wishing you all a happy Buddhist holiday. Tomorrow we will be, I'll be, tomorrow we won't be broadcasting, I think, because I won't be here. Mm, yeah. So uh, Thursday we will have, today's Tuesday, right? Thursday we will have internet the new place. So we should have it there. So, so all the best. And see you all soon. Good night.